it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have episode 266. We have three great listener questions that we're going to go ahead and read and answer today. So without any further ado, I'll go ahead and dive in and we'll jump on to the first one. So we have, hi, Andrew and Dave. As a beginner, I have a core stock question, which would be nice to get more detail on. When you buy a stock, where does your money go? How does it travel through the system and into the hands of the company to invest with your money? When a stock price falls, where does that money disappear to? Thanks for your great podcast, Chris from the UK. So this is a great question, and this is not something we tackled before. So Andrew, I guess, do you want to start with, like, where does the money go when we invest in a company? Like, how does this money flow from point A to point B kind of thing? It's an excellent question. And in explaining the basics of the stock market, I think sometimes something gets miscommunicated. So we'll try to do that. There's two different ways that stocks are bought and sold. Dave, we discussed this before the air. There's the primary IPO mm-hmm. and then the secondary market. Right. So the IPO is something where, you know, if Dave and I have a lemonade business and we wanted to scale it up and we wanted it to be the biggest lemonade business in the world, we would divvy out lots of pieces of our business to raise capital. And so the people investing in our lemonade business would be giving us the capital and that's going directly into the business to grow the business. So that's exactly what happens with a stock in an IPO situation. Yeah, the company like Airbnb went IPO a few years ago. I'm sure a lot of that money that they got from the IPO went back into the company for marketing and establishing technology to help them grow over the long term. However, 
when a company is not IPO'd anymore, and if they're not actively issuing more shares, if it's a company like Microsoft who hasn't had to issue shares in a very long time, these more mature companies, when you buy their stock, your money is not actually directly going to the company. It's actually just changing hands between other people. So do you want to kind of explain that part, Dave? Yeah. So the stock market is basically, it's made up of two groups of people. It's made up of people that are buying companies and people that are selling companies. And the money exchanges hands based on the different prices and when this company is bought and then when that one is sold and that kind of thing. So a stock market is just basically a group of people that are buying, selling buying and selling a piece of a company based on an agreed price of the company. And so, like Andrew said, there's an IPO and then there's a secondary market. The majority of what we talk about when we're buying and selling stocks happens on the secondary market. And that's when we think of Wall Street, we're actually thinking of, mostly we're thinking of the secondary market. But the capital that's contained inside the secondary market doesn't actually leave. It's just trading hands between who's buying and who's selling the company. And so I guess that's kind of the basic gist of it. So that money in the secondary market, again, does not go to Microsoft or Google directly. Yeah. So if I'm selling my shares of Microsoft and Dave's on the other side buying them, Dave's giving me cash and I'm giving him my shares. Microsoft never touches it. Right. And there's brokers in between. So those are like Fidelity or Schwab they're facilitating these things, but essentially that's what's happening. Right. And so the money actually stays in the brokerage account until there's an exchange of ownership, I guess, of the company. So I guess let's talk a little bit about like when the stock price falls. So what happens to the money when that, when we see that on our side of the trade? I was trying to think of how to kind of simplify it. I would just think of if you owned a home, and let's say you bought the home for 300000 And then let's say a week later, homes that are comparable to yours are trading 400000 500000 If your home had a brokerage account, it might say that your home is now worth 400000 or 500000 But that's not money to you unless you actually sold at 400000 or 500000 So on the flip side, if you bought a home for three hundred, and then the homes around you are selling for two fifty. It's not like the money disappeared because the value of your home went down necessarily. It only disappears when you sell. So I think something they say a lot in the financial media is, you know, Mark Zuckerberg lost $66 billion today in value from Facebook stock getting wiped out. Like that's, yeah, the value of a stock went down and, and on paper, maybe the value went down, but nobody actually lost money in the tangible sense of losing dollars. It was more of these things that are on paper, but you don't actually lose the money until you sell. Right. Yep. I think the house is a great example. I think that's the, for me visually, I think that's the easiest way to think about how the change in value doesn't really, isn't realized until you actually do a transaction, until you actually sell it or buy the property. And I think that's probably the easiest way to think about it with your stocks because the value of Microsoft, it'll change, but your ownership doesn't change until you actually do a transaction. So even though you may see that the stock, the price of Microsoft has fallen $30 since you bought it, that doesn't mean that $30 has disappeared from your account. That doesn't happen until you sell it 
at a loss. And then that money does, you know, you'll see less money in your account. But until that actually happens, it's not realized. I think that's probably the easiest way for me to think about it. And I think your house is a great analogy. All right. So let's move on to the next question. By the way, Chris, that was a great question. That's something we hadn't really talked about before. And I think it's an important subject for people to understand. So, all right. So let's move on to the next one. Uh, We have hello, Andrew and Dave. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. I have a question, but I want to first say how much I enjoy the show. I eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff, and I love how you guys aren't wacky and try it too hard with jokes, fluff, and filler like some of the other shows I've tried. Just to the point with great information and real-life honest experiences. I have a long commute, so it's like driving with two good friends that answer questions I've been thinking about. I have some great companies that are in the green, even though these are rough times. My problem is that I find it next to impossible to buy more shares when the share price exceeds my cost basis. I will only buy more shares when the prices are even or fall below, so I'm currently sitting on cash. These are all solid dividend payers, so I know having the long-term compounding and income is a smart thing to do. I'm sure my method is wrong, so I'd appreciate your perspective on not wanting my cost basis to increase. Thanks, guys, for taking the time to do what you do, Mike. 
So, Mike, thank you. This is a great question. I'm going to throw it to Sir Andrew, and we'll kind of start unpacking this a little bit. It's a very interesting question. It's tough to answer because it's very easy to get caught up in this mindset. And so, Mike, I wouldn't call your method wrong necessarily. I feel like it's a very logical way to think about it because I think our brains are hardwired to... At least for me, it's like every day I want to be making progress towards something. So if you're buying a stock at a higher price than what you had bought it yesterday, you don't feel like you're necessarily making progress. And I can see how you feel like you're making progress if you buy when the stock goes down. So that totally makes sense. And there's all sorts of you know, psychology that goes along with that. And there's plenty of studies, I'm sure. I guess the problem with that is investing is more about kind of like what we were talking about in the first question, you're buying ownership in a business. So what happens with the prices, especially in the short term, is doesn't always reflect what the actual business is. So I know like a, a business like Microsoft wouldn't necessarily become so much more valuable in like two or three days. But you know, let's say six months from now, a company like Microsoft, let's say as an example, greatly improved their search engine Bing. And now it, it's all of a sudden getting a lot of users. Just from that perspective alone, Microsoft might be more valuable now because it has more users on its platform. But if you're anchored in this idea, well, I bought the stock at 285. And so now it's at 290. So I'm not going to buy any more. That might not reflect the fact that it's more valuable six months down the line. So it might actually be worth now 300 from the business perspective because of whatever they've done inside the business. It might actually be even a better deal at 300 than it was at 285 as investors. And that's the hard thing that we have to do every day. It's the hard work. You have to separate what you see in your brokerage account or what you see as your cost basis. And you have to separate that between how it actually relates with how businesses are doing. And that could be a whole conversation on its own, but that's kind of the mindset you need to take when you're thinking about what am I going to do if I'm going to add to a stock or, or take away from it. So can we go back for just a second and maybe explain what cost basis is? Kind of, an, I guess, an important term here in the question. And there might be some people out there that aren't familiar with what we're talking about. So what is this magic you're talking about? It's Yeah, that's a great point. We should definitely cover it. Cost basis would be the the price that you purchase the stock at. So if we were going to buy Microsoft stock at 285, our cost basis is 285. And this is important because when you sell one day, if you're going to be taxed by the IRS on your sell, they're going to look at what was the price you paid and then what did you sell at? The price you paid is the cost basis and that's how they calculate it. Now, something that can be beneficial for investors is Let's say Microsoft went from 285 to 250. Well, if you were to buy more at 250, you bought some at 250, you bought some at 285, your cost basis is now somewhere in the middle of those two numbers. And so you can lower your cost basis by buying more when a stock is down. And so over the long term, that makes your gains bigger because 10 years from now, if Microsoft's at 400, you know, your cost basis is now, let's say, 270 instead of 285 because you bought more when the stock was down. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Anything so I, you would add, I guess, to that? I think the cost basis is it's a great idea and it's something that's very important to think about because it goes to the returns that you get. It also goes to our, I guess, our mindset of what we're thinking about how this company is doing versus what's going on in the stock market. And I guess, you know, Mike, the, the couple things that I guess I try to think about is number one is the value of the company. What is that at that particular time that you're thinking about possibly rebuying the company or looking at, at buying it again? Because like Andrew was talking about, it's not just numbers. We're also talking about a business that's operating on a daily basis and trying to create value for the company as well as its shareholders. And if Microsoft is generating more value six months, a year from now, then it's also logical to assume that the company is more valuable now than it was. And so one of the hardest things for me, and this is something I struggle with, I you know freely admit, is averaging up as opposed to averaging down. Averaging down to me seems like it's super easy, no-brainer thing to do. But averaging up is, for me, is harder. But one of the things that I try to think about is the value of Visa more valuable now than when I bought it a few years ago. And if it is, then it makes sense for me to invest in it again, even though it's at a higher cost basis. And because the value of that company is going to continue to compound over time, and I'm still going to earn a great return on that investment. And I guess the other thing to think about too is, do we want to quibble about a $10 increase in price over the next 20 years? No, not really. <laughs> I mean, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, is that latte and a croissant at Starbucks really worth all the stress and agony, you know, 20 years from now? None of us will remember that. But I think trying to, I guess, think about what our goals are with the investing and what our goals are with this particular company and then thinking about what it's worth now versus what it's going to be worth in 10, 15, 20 years. And if the company is improving their performance, then logically it's going to be more valuable. And so it therefore justifies us paying more for it now versus when we first bought it. But I, you know, having said all that, it's logical. It makes sense, but it, it is psychologically, it's harder for me to buy up than it is for me to buy down. And it's something I struggle with too, but I just try to think about the valuation part of it or the price at the value versus what I'm buying. And if that's still in a good relationship, I think it's kind of, I think it's easy to just buy that. Let's, you know, he's talking about solid dividend payers. So let's say Johnson and Johnson, just for example, if that company is performing really well, on a business level, then Johnson and Johnson is going to be more valuable. So it would make more sense to buy more of it, even though it's a higher cost basis. So I guess that's my kind of thought. It is so hard. But if you think about it, what makes the stock market go up? You know, what's going to make a stock go up when a company does better than people expect? So that's a good thing, right? So a lot of times it is for good reason why a stock might move. And you have to get over that psychological hump. And it really hurts if you're calculating mm-hmm. cost basis and return because when you average up, it can almost like slice your return in half. Right. And I see that and it hurts in the short term for sure. Yeah. But you have to think to yourself, am I am I collecting these stocks for like a shiny trophy mm-hmm. to say, look at me, I, I made 200% on the stock. Are you doing your stock investing for that? Or are you trying to build your entire wealth over time? And so really, when you're putting new money in, 
a lot of what you've done in the past shouldn't necessarily factor in too, too much. Right. Yep. I agree. I think those are the best ways to try to think about it. So I hope that helps, Mike. All right. So let's move on to the last question. So we have, hi, Andrew. I just listened to the interview with Christine Short. I enjoyed it and my ears perked up at the end when she mentioned the dividends are decreasing. Would you be able to get into this one on your show? Thank you so much. Sincerely, Katie. So this is a, this is a great question. And we had a really great interview with Christine Short from uh, Wall Street Horizon a little while ago and very smart lady. And she talked a lot about earnings and everything. And she's really t- tapped into what's going on in the markets and with these companies. So it was a great interview. If you haven't listened to it, please go back and check it out. So what are your thoughts on the dividends decreasing? What Christine had mentioned on the interview we did with her was she had done dividends and how looking at the upcoming quarter, they were seeing more companies decreasing their dividends than increasing. So it makes sense coming on the context of people expect a recession. So companies are either cutting their dividend to react or I guess to prepare or that they might already be having trouble and so they're reacting to the trouble. So I feel like she was more just talking about what's upcoming without necessarily saying that over the long term dividends are decreasing. One way I feel like you can kind of check to see how how are dividends doing in the market is you can look at a S&P 500 index ETF. So one I like to reference a lot is ticker SPY. So if you just go into Google and you type in SPY dividend history, you can see how much in dividends that ETF would pay you. And you can see that over the long term, those dividends increase. In the short term, during tough times like this, you you do tend to see the dividends come down. So what does it tell you? Maybe more companies struggle than not to increase that dividend. But over the long term, dividends do tend to increase. So I would not put too much... Nervousness is not the right word, but I wouldn't put too much negative headspace towards what's happening with dividends next quarter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's probably best to look at them as on a company by company basis, as opposed to looking at the overall market sentiment, because it's really more important about what companies you're investing in as opposed to the market sentiment. And if Coca-Cola is still doing great and they're still growing their dividend, that, and you're an investor in Coca-Cola, then how does that really impact you that another company is not increasing their dividend? If you're not invested in that company, I don't. it's going to be a company by company decision that's going to be made by the management and the board of directors. And they're not going to give two hoots whether Pepsi increased their dividend or not. And Coca-Cola is not going to base their decision on what another company does. So it's really more, I think it's more important to consider what's going on with the company's and on a case-to-case basis as opposed to worrying about the overall market. Can we touch a little bit on maybe dividends and why a company would choose to grow them or decrease them kind of based on what's going on with the financials of the company? Yeah, obviously, you know, I don't want to speak for every CEO or board of directors out there, but in general, companies will pay dividends back that they don't need for the business. So... For a lot of dividend payers, when they cut a dividend, it's usually a thing of last resort because people rely on dividends. So, you know, we talk a lot about how a lot of people go into the stock market for different goals. An example of that could be something like a pension fund, where they're not trying to become the next billionaires, but they're trying to have enough income to support the people who work at this company. So, 
pension funds might rely on dividends. And so if a pension fund has Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola doesn't raise their dividend, you're now you're affecting the, the well-being of real people. So companies understand this and they understand why some investors will buy their stocks. And so they take this responsibility very seriously. Not all companies. I mean, some companies like those that are really volatile and those that are tied with commodities, they might just pay a dividend whenever they can. And, and you just look at the track record and you can see, okay, maybe we'll get a dividend, maybe we won't. But a lot of companies will pay steady dividends or increasing dividends. And seeing that dividend decrease can be very painful. And it could be a signal that a company is in trouble. So what does that tell you about you know where companies see the upcoming quarter? You can really interpret that in a million ways. But again, it's it really is on a company-by-company basis. All right. Well, with that, folks, we will go ahead and wrap up our conversation for today. I wanted to thank everybody for taking the time to send us those fantastic questions. These were great. Please keep them coming. If you have any questions about anything, please check out our website, einvestingforbeginners.com. There's a great big search bar there at the top. You can search for any of the topics that we talked about today, and you can learn more about the stock market. It's a great resource for you to help you learn more about what's going on in the markets. And with that, we will go ahead and wrap it up. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.